Episode 3 of ICO 41, Weekly In-Depth Analysis of Initial Coin Offerings. ICO 41. My name is Owen Scott and I'm your podcast host. This podcast focuses deeply on a single ICO each week and presumes some knowledge of the basics of blockchain technology. What's a little different about this podcast is that we read the white papers, we investigate the background of the team. If we can, we spend a little bit of time communicating with the leaders of the project and then we report to you in detail. As always, this podcast is not intended as investment advice, nor as information to lead to any particular action whatsoever. Our aim is to inform, not to suggest. Before we start this week, I want to first answer a question that came from a reviewer on iTunes who asked whether or not we're compensated by any of the ICOs that we feature on the show. The answer is no, absolutely not. And in fact, we don't even participate in the bounties that are offered by these ICOs. Our aim is to provide as impartial analysis as we possibly can, and accepting any kind of compensation at all would undermine that objective. And also, thanks very much for that kind review. Episode 2 last week contained a five-minute introduction to Bitcoin, blockchain technology, and Ethereum, which forms the basis for a lot of these ICOs. For the benefit of subscribers, I won't repeat that explanation, but if you seek a primer on this information, I encourage you to listen to Episode 2. Okay, listeners, this week's upcoming initial coin offering is... Paragon. This project seeks to address some major issues with the medical cannabis industry. Namely, that there's no real established standards for the purity of products, such as THC and CBD potency. The monitoring and collection of quality data along the supply chain from grower dispensary is non-existent. There turns out to be quite a difficulty in obtaining office space for most of the players in the industry, particularly dispensaries, due to the complications with federal laws and other state laws. The community of the cannabis industry is fragmented. Desperately in need of some kind of unifying method by which they can all stand together in the face of difficult regulations at the federal level, plus complicated regulations at the state level. Paragon intends to address these challenges by deploying a token which will drive an economy in order to provide the following solutions. To address standards, an immutable ledger that collects quality data along the supply chain will be created. To address the difficulty in renting commercial space, this token and the underlying economy will provide a way for companies serving the industry to rent working space using the token. To address the fragmentation of the industry, an online network will be created to allow industry stakeholders to band together and unite politically to work together toward cannabis legalization where it has not yet been achieved. One thing that we need to note about this ICO before we begin our analysis 
is the fact that it is very, very large, even by ICO standards today. According to the website, the pre-sale has issued 70 million tokens, which were sold at a price between 75 cents and $1. And another 30 million tokens will be released during the ICO itself, which begins on September 15th. At the projected price points, this amounts to roughly 100 million US dollars as a target to raise for their company. Now, of course, we'll be using our standard 14-point analysis methodology for this podcast, as all others. The points consist of the concept, the company, the team, the white paper, the roadmap, the token, the network, and then any technology behind it, the pre-sale, any offering details, SEC compliance, business viability, community response and anticipation, possible issues with a little bit of devil's advocacy if necessary, and then the final takeaway. Let's get started with the concept. First, again, we need to state that one of the things that has to be considered when we examine the concepts put forth by Paragon is the fact that they're seeking $100 million. This is important because with a number that high, one would expect that the problems that would be solved conceptually would be, number one, universal in nature, and two, extremely urgent and dire, and three, compelling from a business standpoint. So please remember that number as you listen to this analysis. First, let's talk about the idea of monitoring quality and purity. Now, at first glance, we understand some of the challenges that are listed in the white paper and on the website with the cannabis industry. We can imagine, similar to last week's ICO Ambrosius, how placing sensors at labs or in grow houses and reporting those results on some sort of immutable database of information would provide some comfort to consumers. And yet, unlike the food and pharmaceutical industry, we don't actually see a widespread demand from consumers for quality assurance in this industry. It seems to us that they are mainly letting the market determine the quality of the product and relying on their experiences as well as the standards that are in place on a state-by-state level, as variable as those standards are. Now, it's absolutely true that Paragon is correct in pointing out the confused state of the cannabis industry with respect to the oversight, the regulation, and the standards. No question about that. Just to take an example, we've looked at a paper by the Washington State Liquor Control Board that was published in August of 2013, immediately after Washington State voted to legalize marijuana. This 20-page paper suggested some avenues for the state to take with respect to establishing quality and testing standards. For example, they examined the possibility of forcing labs to gain accreditation in standards such as ISO 17025, which is an international standard that outlines rigorous lab testing for any kind of consumable product. But as the paper pointed out at the time of publication, There was only one lab in the U.S. that even held that accreditation, and it wasn't even in the state of Washington. So Washington, to take this one example, opted to go through a route of certifying labs for testing using their own criteria through an application process and basing certification chiefly on the academic credentials of the so-called scientific director of the lab, plus submitting to periodic inspections by the liquor board. Now, this avenue and the resulting regulations in that state is just one of over 20 examples, and every single state is a little bit different. So in this case, it's very difficult to imagine the introduction of blockchain technology 
to make a great deal of headway in unifying the current wide range of regulations and standards from state to state. And so the benefit to using the blockchain technology would mainly be the comfort achieved by the consumer. And we have a little bit of a hard time believing that the labs or the growers will adopt these sensors and these mechanisms since there's not a lot of incentive for them to do so. It's also difficult to imagine that the states themselves, the legislative branches of the states, will adopt a unified standard at all, blockchain or no blockchain, given the United States' propensity for individual states to maintain control over state-managed regulations. And we all know what the federal position is at the moment on marijuana. The second major concept put forth by the Paragon team is that of a shared office space. Now, in this case, the idea is for Paragon to use most of the proceeds from the token sale, which appears to be heading toward $100 million as we speak, to purchase and refit shared office space that will be rented to tenants using the Paragon token. This is a little bit confusing to us. First, the investors of the ICO which are supplying the $100 million, are not granted any stake in the property acquired by the company. Now, this is, of course, necessary from a legal standpoint because of SEC regulations. If that were the case and the investors were provided equity in the real estate that was purchased, then the offering would need to be registered as a security. But this question has been asked on various forums. Why purchase the real estate? Why not just lease it and then sublease it using the Paragon token? This would, it would seem, reduce the need for $100 million in capital. This question was actually never directly answered on any of the forums. And finally, although the white paper mentions that dispensaries could use these spaces, other comments from officials of the company on such forums as Bitcoin Talk and Reddit have mentioned that the spaces would be used by companies that serve the industry, such as lighting companies, hydroponic manufacturers, and others, not the dispensaries. But as someone pointed out on Reddit, those types of companies have zero problems obtaining commercial spaces. So the market for shared space in this industry seems to be confined to a pretty narrow use case. Now to address the current fragmentation of the industry, Paragon's concept is to create an online community on a blockchain like Steemit to incentivize and compensate that community for posting and contributing. And those posters, like Steemit, would be rewarded with the Paragon token. But because it is illegal in most places for consumers to purchase medical marijuana with a token, that community would mainly consist of people who would use those tokens in the rental spaces, plus people in the industry who would perhaps hope to profit from the token by exchanging it for fiat currency. But the main issue in these Steemit-type forums is that they work based on volume. The cannabis industry is inherently small when compared to the user base of Steemit or Reddit, which is not tied to any one topic or industry. And so we find it difficult to believe that there would be widespread adoption enough to power an online platform such as Steemit. So purely from a conceptual perspective and using this all-important question that we use, 
Why the blockchain? We, to be honest, don't see compelling reasons for a blockchain or even a decentralized solution of any kind. So remember fundamentally that one of the main problems that the use of a decentralized platform seeks to solve is that there is very often a large central authority, like a bank, that is standing in the way of many peers who want to interact. And that central authority is extracting perhaps onerous fees to allow those peers to interact. That's the baseline concept and driver for a decentralized platform, among other things. But in the cannabis industry, there's no real central authority. Yes, indeed, there is a state-by-state authority that governs all kinds of aspects of the interactions. But legally, it's impossible at the moment for consumers to circumvent the approved payment systems that are in place. So here, a decentralized currency will not help since cannabis cannot be purchased with it. So the utilitarian case for the token is extremely narrow. It's just currently based on the idea of renting shared office space and perhaps buying some services like coffee when you're at the shared office space. And thus, we don't really see, again, getting back to the dollar amount, how it justifies $100 million worth of capital. That's the conceptual analysis. Let's cover the team and the company. There really is no actual company to examine uh, in this case, uh, since the company just sort of fairly appeared as a vehicle for the ICO in the project. Now, this in and of itself is not terribly unusual or alarming with these ICOs that we have seen. So in that case, as always, we need to examine the team. Now, this is where, in our humble opinion, the project begins to unravel. The CEO is a former Miss Iowa. She's a model and she has started a high-end marijuana confectionery company in San Francisco. She certainly seems like a nice enough person, but it does not appear to us that she would have the business or the technical background to lead a $100 million company that is embarking on an ambitious, technical, decentralized platform to solve tricky problems in a brand new, chaotic industry such as legalized marijuana. Her husband, who's called the chief creative officer, is a Russian semi-celebrity, but he's perhaps best known for the antics of conspicuous consumption, and in some cases just downright silliness. As an example, he organized and hosted a challenge where he collected a large amount of money in a sort of auction-based event where he would tattoo his hand with the design of choice of the winner of the auction. And when you really look at the social profiles of this couple, and you know we live in a day and age when that is quite possible, What you see pretty much amounts to two people extremely focused on making and spending money. The only technical person listed on the core team, the chief technology officer, has very little in the way of credentials that we could find, papers that he has written, blogs, and his responses to technical questions on Reddit have been not very technical at all. There are no developers listed on the core team. And I've gone to GitHub and I've examined the 246 projects that are associated with the term Paragon, and none of them are related to this company or project. When you go to other sites trying to find a GitHub repository for this project, there are none. When asked for the identity of other team members which might be programmers 
And when asked for these GitHub repositories, both were questions on the Slack channel. The team declined to provide that information. The person listed with apparently the most technical experience in cryptocurrency or blockchain technology is on the advisory board, not the core team. So what we can gather, there really is no core technical team and no evidence of any work actually completed leading up to this ICO. When we examine the backgrounds of the core team, the only somewhat relevant experience that we can find is with the chief operating officer, who appears to have about 20 years of experience in supply chain management. And the chief strategy officer was thanked for a contribution on a popular O'Reilly book about the SSH protocol a few years ago, so that's something. But as you might be able to tell here, I'm sort of reaching. If you were to ask me, whether the people listed on this team could pull off a complicated blockchain project like this, I would have to say that I doubt it. Let's talk about the white paper. This white paper is 44 pages long. The first five pages discuss the general state of affairs with the cannabis industry. Section two lists a mission statement that consists of nine bullet points, some of which mention the platform, some of which provide their intentions. These nine bullet points are somewhat generalized and not what you might call cohesive. What I mean by that is they don't all point in the same direction. Some points are regarding the honorable intentions that they have and their integrity. Others make statements to the platform, and yet others make references to advantages gained by focusing on hot topics such as crypto and cannabis. There are a couple of prominent statements in this white paper that form the heart and soul of it, in my opinion which bear repeating and analyzing. The first is this, and I'm quoting, blockchain-built smart contract technology is ideally suited to organize, systematize, and bring verification and stability to a traditionally unchecked industry. And another one is, quote, putting cannabis data and transactions on blockchain smart contracts will increase the speed of service and save companies hundreds of thousands in reduced paperwork. First, it's not clear from the white paper how precisely the blockchain would organize, systematize, and bring verification and stability. They do go on to mention the following, an immutable ledger that offers permanent verification of every past transaction, and then which stores all product lifecycle and information forever in an easy-to-retrieve system. It sounds a little bit like Ambrosius, but if you think about it, the concept of Lifecycle information forever, who's going to need to retrieve and use this information once the product is actually consumed? Maybe some attorneys, if there was a lawsuit or a death from the consumption of a product? Possibly. But in order for this to be adopted in a widespread manner, profound legal changes would need to happen in more than 20 states at the time of this podcast. And those states are reeling from their ability to even provide any legislative oversight whatsoever. We have a hard time believing that legislation will change with the introduction of this. So the white paper is kind of full of broad statements like that. Here's one more. The combination of decentralized encryption, anonymity, immutability, and global scale turns Paragon into the ultimate online community for the legalization of cannabis across borders. Beyond that statement, however, there's really no explanation of precisely how. Now on page 11, there are nine specific use cases listed in the cannabis industry. Superficially read, these nine statements sound like reasonable ideas. 
But they really are just that. They're ideas. There's no analysis or proposal or technical solution that follows to explain precisely how any of these ideas would actually be implemented. The treatment of this topic that most closely resembles something technical is a series of steps that are undertaken in a typical cannabis supply chain, starting with the cultivation of the crop and leading to the purchase by the consumer. There's plenty of steps listed, but the closest thing we get to something technical is the method of monitoring using RFID tags on the pots that contain the plants, and which somehow would record days in vegetation, days in drying, days in cure, hydroponic versus soil, and how this is achieved with a small device that's tied to the pot is not really explained. To take another example, this paper mentions, quote, assign or verify certifications or certain properties of physical properties, but absolutely nothing about the types of sensors, the capabilities of the sensors, or the application of the sensors. There is one vague comment about a 24-hour camera recording the possibility of selling plants out the back door of a grow house. But what exactly is the plan there? To upload the footage to the blockchain? The section four of the white paper is titled Collaboration with IOTA. That's I-O-T-A. And which appears to have been inserted as sort of an afterthought. It's a brief paragraph. I should explain first what IOTA is. It's, it's actually a somewhat revolutionary and brand new technology, which consists of a distributed platform, but without a blockchain. In fact, its very existence is due to the simple fact that it's almost impossible to scale a traditional blockchain platform when working with an Internet of Things concept like Paragon is offering or like Ambrosius offered last week where you have hundreds of thousands of transactions reported by sensors and then intended to be written to some blockchain. So it appears when we look at the white paper and then when we look at the uh, evolution of the project as expressed in various social platforms, that the Paragon team realized that this issue would appear. And so they contacted the IOTA team. In fact, there's actually an Ask Me Anything subreddit held by both Paragon and IOTA, where they answered questions together. It wasn't a bad Ask Me Anything. In fact, of the several Ask Me Anythings, it was probably the most coherent, uh, possibly because the IOTA team stepped in quite often uh, and answered questions. But the problem is that the Paragon team neglected to go back to the white paper and fill out any details whatsoever. There's no real understanding of how the IOTA platform really would work in this case, not on any kind of technical or detailed treatment. Now, besides the almost complete lack of technical information in this white paper, I actually think the most alarming aspect is Section 9, which is titled Risks. Now, this section of the white paper consists of no less than nine densely written pages. It's over 3,500 words of dire warnings, mostly around the fact that the token could become worthless from a pretty wide variety of reasons. To give you an idea of how much information we're talking about, if I were to read all of this text out loud in those pages, it would consume more than three quarters of this 41-minute podcast. Now, I applaud the fact that their team listened closely to their attorneys to document in detail all of the things that could possibly go wrong. 
But I have to say that I've not seen anything quite like this in an ICO white paper. If I were myself to consider investing in this project, I would focus on this section, since it's probably the most substantial part of the white paper itself. And that kind of tells you something. Now let's talk about the roadmap. An interesting aspect of this roadmap, as it is shown in the white paper, is that the very first step in the roadmap is November 15th, 2017, when the token will be listed on the major exchanges. This reveals some interesting information if you think about it. Number one, there has been no work done yet. Many roadmaps, in fact, most roadmaps, start sometime before the ICO. And they outline and talk about what has been done leading up to the ICO. Well, this roadmap seems to indicate that nothing really starts at all until 15 days after they collect the $100 million. And number two, notice it's the first thing they're thinking about. The very first step. Before any coding, before any other aspects of the project, the first thing that has to happen is that token has to be listed. Now, they do go on to mention some initial functionality, which are things like a web app, um, an online dashboard with up and down vote capability, a database of doctors, a few other databases. No timelines for those. The first real estate purchase is slated for February of 2018 and specifies Oakland, California as a destination. And then in November 2018, the flagship location and headquarters will be opened. The blockchain smart contract just one apparently, will be fully functioning and all services operational for all use cases described. And that last phrase is a quote. Well, when we consider the team, when we consider the use cases that they've suggested and the fact that there doesn't seem to be any prior work whatsoever or any public code, it becomes very hard to take that timeline seriously. Let's talk about the token and the network and the technology. The token will be named Paragon with a symbol of PRG. And in the white paper, it's defined as an ERC-20 token created on the Ethereum platform. And yet this calls into question to some degree the reference to IOTA, which is most definitely not an ERC-20 token and in fact is on a different platform altogether from Ethereum. Now, having said that, we should keep in mind that the IOTA developers themselves have stated more than once that their platform is not really designed as a competing or a replacement platform for any other hard chain technology, as they say, like Ethereum. And it really should be considered as a complementary platform to shore up any issues that blockchain platforms like Ethereum struggle with, such as scalability of Internet of Things. So there is a chance that this arrangement could work, this hybrid solution, if you will, providing there is good integration, well-thought-out communication between the two platforms. But the architects of this Paragon platform and the authors of the white paper provide zero details as to what parts would be on the Ethereum platform, what parts would leverage IOTA, and what parts might leverage some infrastructure. In fact, it's a little bit strange because in the risks section, several of the major risks that are listed have to do with a failure of infrastructure that is managed by the Paragon team. And yet you have to ask, what infrastructure, if this is a decentralized application, what infrastructure are we talking about? The whole nature of using decentralized platforms like Ethereum and IOTA 
is there is no infrastructure beyond the code that is sent out to the clients that is then operated by nodes. So it doesn't really add up. The technology itself, the way it's presented, it doesn't all fit together. We would imagine that an offering of this size would contain some technical level of information with respect to interoperability between platforms, mechanisms by which communications would occur, some sort of software stack, some sort of detail about how this will be implemented beyond the sprinkling of words like smart contracts. We didn't find any. In terms of the token, it'll be used to provide a payment mechanism for various services in the cannabis industry, such as doctor's prescriptions, materials for growers, rental space for the companies in the community, services at those rental spaces, such as coffee. Now, this is where I normally would cover in detail the technology underlying the platform, but there just isn't any, so I won't comment on it. I'm going to move on to the pre-sale. The pre-sale started on October 15th, 2017. Now, during that pre-sale, contributors received a 25% discount from the $1 USD token price with a minimum purchase of $25,000 in the first 10 days. This was then reduced to a 15% discount in the second 10 days of the offering pre-sale with a $15,000 minimum contribution. And in the remaining days, a 10% discount was provided with a $10,000 minimum contribution. According to the very latest data on the website, the pre-sale consisted of 70 million PRG tokens and that and they were sold at these varying discounts. There, of course, is no way to precisely know how much money was raised because of this sliding scale. But if 70 million tokens were indeed sold, it was clearly a substantial amount of money. Now, in the mission statement, it's mentioned that the funds will be escrowed and the books will be audited by the likes of Deloitte, Grant Thornton, or other well-known, recognized international accounting firms. And in the months ahead, it'll be interesting to review these audits if they're made publicly available. Here are the details of the ICO itself. Now, the ICO began on September 15th, and it'll end October 15th, 2017. The ICO is open to U.S. investors, from what we could tell. The hard cap of the entire sale is 100 million PRG tokens, but according to the website, since 70 million of these are sold, that leaves 30 million tokens. As of 24 hours after the start of the sale, the website shows 1.5 million tokens to have been sold thus far. There is an exchange that is listing the token right now. It's HITBTC, H-I-T-B-T-C. And at the moment, the price seems to be around 0.0035 Ether, which is about 87 cents USD per token. It's possible to actually join the crowd sale right now at paragoncoin.com, but there are no precise instructions until you log in and create an account. And a dashboard is then provided, and it appears that the method is to simply send payment through a variety of coins possible directly to wallets of the respective cryptocurrency. There are about a dozen currencies accepted. This is a little bit different than some of the other ICOs that uh, we've participated in, in that there's precise instructions on how to create their token with the appropriate token address on the Ethereum platform. And then you would get tokens back on that custom token that you created in Ethereum. 
That's how it's been done before in other ICOs. What that allows is that allows during a token sale to take the smart contract address of the token and go to Etherscan and look at the actual blockchain. That's what this is all about is the open uh, sort of open source and open transparency of the blockchain. In this case, we don't find those instructions. And so therefore, possibly, unless you actually invest, you won't get that address and you won't be able to look at Etherscan. And when we go to Etherscan and we try to find PRG, searching that way, we don't find anything. So it, it just isn't clear to us right now. We're just going to leave it at that. Um, you can check it out, give it your own shot, and find out how you might be able to uh, participate, maybe participate with a small amount. It's a very, very low minimum to participate, as little as uh, $1.50, I think. The somewhat odd feature of this token offering is that the price of the token actually goes up a nickel, uh, USD every 24 hours for the offering. And finally, with respect to the allocation of funds, here's how they're allocated. 10 million tokens to the founders, 5.7 million for the team, 2 million for institutional investors, friends and family, 5 million tokens, advisors, 1.95 million tokens, and the rest is allocated to later stages of fundraising. Let's talk about SEC compliance for a moment here. Now, with respect to the SEC and the infamous Howey test, First, quickly, uh, just in case this is your first episode, this so-called Howey test refers to a Supreme Court case which decided whether an investment could be considered or should be considered a security or not. And it has been used as a standard ever since uh, to try to figure out if the SEC would uh, consider an offering a security. Uh, this has had profound implications for the ICO industry particularly those open for U.S. investors, and particularly because of the recent remarks made in a memorandum by the SEC. The idea is that if an offering could be considered a security by the SEC, then the company issuing the offering would need, by law, to register it with the SEC as such. Because this is a long-term, very expensive process, ICOs generally do everything they can to avoid it. Paragon is no exception in this case, and they have hired an attorney, which appears on their team, that specializes in such matters, and he's been involved with other ICOs, to guide them. If there's one part of the test that is the most important, it's whether or not the offering implies a return on the investment. Now, the white paper, of course, is careful to avoid any direct statement, and it seeks to present a sort of classic version of a so-called utility token, complete with voting rights. But the public statements on social channels like Reddit and Bitcoin talk by the leaders of the project indicate otherwise, whether they really understand that or not. One example is when someone asked the chief creative officer and husband of the CEO whether a $200 million valuation, and that figure came up from the total plan cap on the issued token, by the way, was a representation of the balance sheet of the company, and the response was, quote, when our crypto is listed on a major exchange and if the market cap shoots to a billion, are you going to ask the same question? And in the same thread, he also stated, quote, the more our company has to build an ecosystem around this token, the more valuable the token is going to be. And then there is the tweet by the rapper, The Game, who's also on the team, or at least the advisory board, which said something to the effect 
of time to make our investors millionaires. These kind of statements pretty much indicate a complete failure of at least the spirit of the Howey test. And it's probably for good reason that they have received in these public forums advice, well-meaning, from people apparently trying to help them with statements like, please try to refrain from promising returns on these investments. Let's talk about the business viability. In terms of the business viability, if the company does manage to collect as much money as it appears they're collecting, and if they go and buy a lot of real estate and they convert it to rentable shared space, there's certainly a possibility that the company will make money and be a going concern. Because real estate itself has been a lucrative investment in general, and there are use cases and prior uh, evidence that uh, this kind of shared space concept is perfectly viable. But as an investment in the ICO, investors who purchase the tokens don't have a stake in the real estate holdings, nor even in the business, really. Instead, the potential for investors of this ICO lies in the success of the token. And for that, you have to believe in the vision for the use of the token and the business viability for the use of the token, not in the real estate holdings that are purchased with the money from the ICO. Thus, the success of the business itself is really not material to the discussion of the success of the ICO from an investment perspective. Instead, it's the use case of the token. And as we've said before, our opinion is that the use case of this token is pretty narrow. Let's talk about the reaction from the community. The reaction from the community has been, to put it charitably, extremely skeptical. And the communication from the leadership that we have seen has been relatively amateurish, lacking in any kind of substance, questionable in many regards. It's absolutely true, in fairness, that every ICO these days is definitely subject to attack, spiteful behavior, trashing in the forums. But in this case, I actually see a lack of acceptable answers. If you filter out all the direct attacks, you know, maybe even misogynist attacks toward the CEO for being beautiful and, uh, and a model, if you filter all that out, I still see a lack of answers to tough but well-posed questions. So when these people were asked probing questions about the lack of technical detail, lack of experience, and other factors missing from a respectable offering of this size, the responses were almost always an accusation that the person making the request, the question, was part of some kind of extortion conspiracy. It's a little bit bizarre, actually. Uh, there was one strange situation wherein someone on the Slack channel made a negative post, then sent a message in what appears to be a request for money to edit or remove the post, typical kind of things that happen during, uh, during ICOs. Well, this turned into a huge campaign by Paragon to loudly proclaim that they were the victims of a wide-ranging extortion attack. I mean, this even led to interviews and blog posts from sympathetic bloggers, lots of press, subreddit wars. All it did, in my opinion, was to deflect from the serious questions, which I never really found answers to. Let's talk about the gotchas. Now, normally the gotchas of this section of the podcast consist of a few items that might be construed as potential issues. But in this case, our opinion is 
pretty much the entire ICO is one big gotcha. Almost every point of the 14 that we normally discuss has some problem. Our final takeaway of this ICO is that while it may be true that this group is successful in raising money, and if you believe their numbers that 70 million tokens have already been allocated, they certainly have been. We nevertheless believe that the ultimate vision expressed in the white paper is unlikely to come to pass, even with that money. But then, judging from the perspective of both the team and the people who are apparently investing in this, unfortunately doesn't seem to matter. That's it this week for ICO 41. We'll see you next week, and thank you for listening.